Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want us to think about the pursuit of happiness. So not the... 2006 film with Will Smith, that was a tearjerker, but rather the pursuit of happiness in our own lives. The world will tell us that this is what our lives are for, this is our aim, and actually the pursuit of happiness is an upwards trajectory of situation after situation going well, and the progressive linear graph of your life kind of looks like this as you go on, as you age. Whether it be through job progression, career, relationships, marriage, finances, buying a house, owning a car, the world will tell you that as these things increase, so will your happiness, or so will your blessing. And actually, the mark of a happy or blessed person is someone that has all these things, that has reached all these milestones, collated all these items. And so today, I want our focus to be really on what actually means to be blessed and what Jesus says about those who are. So we're actually starting a new preaching series this morning. We've been doing the Summer of Psalms, which has been amazing, but we're going to be doing one on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be doing a deep dive into it. And for those of you that are less familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's located in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. And during these chapters, Jesus basically outlines what the life of a follower of God should look like. And there are scholars and philosophers all over the world who wouldn't profess to believe in God, but openly state that the teachings of Jesus were incredibly profound and still relevant today. Even the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins has publicly stated that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And the teachings of Jesus in these passages alone cover topics on divorce, relationships, fasting, murder, prayer, giving to the poor, and even anxiety as well. They're full of wisdom, direction, cultural controversy, and encouragement. And I think we're going to have a great time working through them over this next term. One thing, though, that I want to really encourage us in, and that's something that God has kind of been speaking to me about recently, is the concept of hearing from God might not always mean it's for you. And you might be thinking, well, obviously, Beth, people get words and prophecies and, you know, dreams that are for other people all the time, which is great, but I'm not talking about that. I think the challenge is actually when we hear teaching And instead of our sole focus being, what is God speaking to me about through this preach? Actually being like, what is God speaking to me about to go and share with someone else? What is God going to say in the next 20 minutes that, yes, will be helpful for me, but is actually intended to stir me up and share it with another? It's called good news because it's meant for sharing. It's not a good secret. This is how the gospel spreads. We can come here every Sunday and have a great time, but if we're not taking what we hear or what we learn back out to those who've never heard it, we're missing something. So what I want to bring today might not actually be for you. It might not be for anyone here, but actually might be your role in hearing it is to pass it on to someone else, someone in your circle, a course mate, a colleague, a family member, your neighbour, a randomer at Aldi, anyone. So we're going to begin, we're going to start with Matthew 5 that will appear on the screen, and we're going to look at verses from 1 through to 12. So I'm just going to go read them now. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you've grown up in the church or been a Christian for a while, you'll probably be quite familiar with these verses, or they're also known as the Beatitudes. And they can almost seem a little bit like Proverbs or a little bit cryptic. They're full of meaning, and I'm going to do my best to work through them in a short space of time today. So within some of your translations, it might say, happy are the poor in spirit. So just to get our heads around this phrase, blessed or happy, before we dig in, these days we use, or I use, the phrase, oh, bless you, or like, bless him, so flippantly. I personally probably do it about 10 times a day. It's like a filler word for me. And it's almost like putting good energy out there. Do you know what I mean? It's like good feelings or like there's no spiritual attachment to it, whatever. When I say, oh, bless him, I'm not actually saying, bless him, you know. <laughs> it's very just kind of like nonchalant and easy. But the blessings of the Bible aren't just empty filler phrases, but more of a divine promise. If we look at the Old Testament and the story of the two brothers Esau and Jacob in Genesis, and how Jacob tricks his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that was rightfully Esau's, the levels Jacob went in deceiving his father shows the weight of what a blessing means in biblical terms. This blessing that Jacob went to great lengths to receive was far more than a flippant empty good vibe out into the ether. This kind of blessing has spiritual weight and in certain instances determines someone's fate. What's more, the terminology in this passage, as we've seen, is that it's all in past tense. It's not saying those who are poor in spirit will one day be blessed. Those who mourn will one day be blessed. But it's blessed past tense are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. The blessing is in the midst of the striving, not just a promise for when you come out the other side. And there's a range of interpretations as to how this passage is read. Some people interpret it as Jesus sharing commandments or like descriptions and attributes of a believer. And some would say that we should seek after these things so that we may be blessed, to mourn the weight of our sin or then we'll be comforted, or to deny ourselves so that our hunger for God and righteousness would increase, or to seek being poor in spirit so that we may know the abundance of the kingdom of heaven. But I don't know about you, but I have no plans, as verse 11 says, to start to be persecuted anytime soon. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pray that God would persecute me or that anyone else would persecute me. So today I want us to look at this passage a little differently. And instead of maybe looking at these as virtues, I want us to look at them as invitations, as promises. So we arrive at the mountain and Jesus begins his sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor are an integral theme throughout the whole Bible. With over 2,000 references, we can be pretty certain that God cares deeply about the poor. His heart is for them. And when we think of the poor, our minds most likely go to those without earthly possessions, homes, those who, through a series of unfortunate events, have been left with nothing. Maybe those who have fled their homeland out of desperation. Those who are destitute, without hope. And Jesus throws a bit of a curveball here, 
And rather than talking about the poor in financial sense or material sense, he's speaking about those who are poor in spirit, those who feel spiritually lacking, those who feel like they have no emotional or spiritual resources to fall back on. Where there once felt maybe comfort and ease, your spiritual life and what with God might feel like a bit more like a desert. It feels desolate and dry. And I've been reading a book recently called Chasing the Dragon um, over the last couple of weeks during summer. And it's an autobiographical um, (laughs) book by a woman named Jackie Pullinger, who in the mid-60s, at the young age of 22, got any 22-year-olds here? I know we do, yeah. (laughs) Felt the call from God to go. Unsure where, just go. And she went on a worldwide boat trip, basically, and said to God, I'll get off wherever you tell me to. And the place that turned out that God said go was on the other side of the world. It was the walled city, also described as the city of darkness on the edge of Hong Kong, a place that was essentially a densely populated, ungoverned, unpleased drug den, well known for prostitution, human trafficking, drug addicts, gang crime, extortion and fear. I feel like if she had have known that's where God would send her, she might not have got on the boat. Do you know what I mean? I would have been like, I'm not getting on that boat. Um, But Jackie went in with minimal Cantonese and started preaching the gospel to addicts, gang leaders, murderers, pimps, and to those whose poverty wasn't necessarily in earthly wealth, but those who were desperately spiritually poor. And she began to see miraculously through the move of the Holy Spirit, heroin and opium addicts healed overnight after years of using, coming off with no withdrawal symptoms. Gang leaders drop their weapons, discard their lucrative income, leave their clan and follow Jesus. She was seeing the kingdom of heaven coming to the spiritually poor in a radical way. And this is the same God that meets us in our spiritual wasteland. That when we come to the end of ourselves and bring it before God, we lay down everything and recognize where our source is. As the psalm says in Psalm 87, all my fountains are in you. Without you, I am poor in spirit. I am desolate. And the promise here, the blessing, is that in this poverty of spirit that Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven, the ruling, reigning, and sovereignty of Jesus in our lives and the abundance that that carries. And not only that, in that kingdom, there is heavenly comfort. Jesus goes on in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The word mourn, to me, it feels quite small for the magnitude of things it can cover. Our minds go to, of course, the death of someone important to you, a loved one. But it's also possible to mourn potentially the loss of a job, the breakdown of a friendship, a relationship. Maybe you're mourning a lifelong dream that's yet to come to fruition. An estranged family member where it feels like resolution will never come. We mourn the lost things of this world, the broken, the hopeless. And we also, we mourn alongside each other. I had um, one of my close friends last year, she unexpectedly and very suddenly lost her dad. And I mourned with her at her sorrow that she was experiencing. I mourned with her. And this was something that Jesus did. We see in John 11 when Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus became sick and died. Before, he raised, before Jesus raised Lazarus to life, he wept alongside them. He wept for the sorrow of the ones he loved. And if you're mourning today, I would just encourage you, go over and read John 11. It so beautifully paints the picture of the proximity of Jesus' heart to those who are grieving and his heart to comfort and restore 
And it's very hard in these scenarios to hold both the reality of mourning and the concept of being blessed in tandem. But this blessing comes with a future assurance. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In Revelation 21, verse 4, as Tim quoted a minute ago, it speaks of a day when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. If you are mourning here today, Jesus is here. He sees you. He sees your pain. He calls you by name. In Psalm 34, it says, the Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted. He calls you blessed and promises comfort. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, or in other words, the gentle, will inherit the earth. We see in this verse how subversive and controversial often Jesus' teachings were for their time. And even 2,000 years later, even in our society now, we think about it. It's rarely the gentle that end up on top. In business, sports, politics, the gentle generally aren't the ones that you see in power or on the top of a podium. I don't think I'd describe any of our recent prime ministers as gentle. And it's not that, like, it's not that their fight, sorry, it's not those that fight their way to the top in our dog-eat-dog world to receive, no, sorry, it's those that fight their way to the top in our dog-eat-dog world that receive their inheritance. And just as it doesn't really apply to our world today, it didn't really apply to the crowds that Jesus was speaking to on this mountaintop either. Their world was dominated by power and number of armies, They knew what it was like to live under dictatorships. Meek leaders just didn't exist, and they definitely didn't own land. The people that took and claimed the land, those were the people that had the power. Meek, from their perspectives, would have been the equivalent to weak. But Jesus is saying here, no, you, you who don't assert your power or assume your position above others, you are the ones who will inherit the earth. Not those forever striving to get to the top, to be in power, to parade their own strength and glory. Those that trust in me and my power above their own, you will inherit the earth. And when we align ourselves with God's will and trust in that power, we find fulfillment, we find purpose. As verse 6 goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, or in some translations, they will be satisfied. I think so much of the pain and trauma in our world right now, is a product of unright relationships that lead to unrighteousness. And we see this at the beginning of time. We see it with Adam and Eve. They're tempted by the serpent and they disobey God. We see that breakdown of right relationships between man and woman. Genesis 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. We see it between man and creation in that moment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And we see it between humanity and God in verse 23. Therefore, the God sent, Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. We see man banished from the Garden of Eden and from perfect commune with God. And today in our world, we see the effects of these breakdowns between man and woman or just one another in the statistics of domestic abuse cases in broken families and systemic issues like racism and classism. We see the brokenness between man and creation in the contamination of water sources on the other side of the world where mass-producing factories have disposed of their chemical waste on like vital water systems for communities, local communities around there. And we see our broken relationship with God in our own strivings. We're chasing after things of this earth to make us feel right, to make us feel okay, 
to fill the void and the cracks within ourselves. And it's easy to look at our world right now and just see disunity, abuse of power and lack of hope to hunger for more. But our God is a God of justice and righteousness. And he has promised that when we lift our eyes from the world and despair, when we hunger for more, when we look to him, we will be filled. So we hunger and thirst for righteousness, not in vain or fear, but in the assurance that our God is sovereign and triumphant over it all. And when this happens, when we are filled, our heart posture changes. As Jesus goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again here we see Jesus use two quite powerful statements that are really countercultural and challenging. How often is our reaction to us being wronged to show mercy? Before Jesus came on the scene, the people of Galilee would have been operating on the old Levitical law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which I think is a mantra that we do actually still see in our lives today. But Jesus actually goes on later in this chapter to challenge that mantra. He says in verse 38, verse 39, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. How prevalent is this in our lives to show mercy? I think often more likely the temptation is to stand there in our own pride and maybe we don't outwardly in an obvious way punish the person for how they've wronged us but we manage to do it in a subtle undertone but when Peter questions Jesus on the topic of forgiveness later we find he says he asked him how many times must I forgive my brother how many times must I sit here while they wrong me time and time again surely there's a limit and Peter offers seven he says is that the limit seven And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. We can forgive without limit because we've been forgiven without limit. We can show mercy because we know mercy. Mercy is compassion in action and it's costly. It's a challenge for us. For us, it often costs our pride, but for Jesus, it costs his life. Our response to God's mercy should be to show it in our own lives. And alongside this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, this is another challenge, as purity at this time was something to be obtained through sacrifices, rituals. Those who were in God's favor were those who practiced these laws. But Jesus teaches that in this new covenant, in the new kingdom that he's bringing forward, purity of heart is what will lead you to see God. The theologian Spurgeon said of these verses, Christ was dealing with men's spirits, with their inner and spiritual nature. He did this more or less in all the Beatitudes. And this one strikes the very center of the target, as he says, not blessed are the pure in language or the pure in action, much less blessed are the pure in ceremonies or in raiment, which means garments or jewels, or in food, but blessed are the pure in heart. Meaning it's not what you bring physically, what earthly possessions you have to offer, what good deeds, but rather an undivided heart, for you will see God. And what a motivation for pursuing a pure heart, not out of fear or condemnation or our own striving, but out of the will to see God. And the more we encounter God and the more we see him, the more we are changed. And verse 9 is a testament to this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. There's quite something quite active about the word peacemaker. It's not blessed are the peaceful or blessed are those who seek peace, but rather blessed are those who make peace, those who bring peace. 
Maybe there's a situation in your life right now that you can think of which doesn't really feel very peaceful. Instead of peace, it feels like there's an air of hostility or opposition. Maybe it's between colleagues or friends or even family. Maybe you're standing in the middle of it between two parties trying to mediate the conflict. Or potentially you're actually one of the parties in the conflict. You think, I have to stand in this fight. I have to stand my ground and prove myself or hold on to this discretion because I was in the right and they were in the wrong. And if I let go of this, they get away with it. Peace is the last thing on your mind, but God calls us to be peacemakers. You might be thinking, but you don't know my boss, Beth. My boss is the worst of the worst. They speak down to me. They've shouted at me in front of my colleagues and disrespected me. They make my life a nightmare. Or you don't know my brother or sister and the things they've said to me over the years, the things I've had to swallow and try to forget. Or you don't know my father or mother who showed me no love, only pain. And I don't, but Jesus does. And he is one who knows your affliction because he knew it himself. He came down to an earth that oppressed him, crushed him, mocked him, that crucified him, all while his mission, his manifesto, was to bring peace. It was to bring right relationship, to bring mercy. It was to bring a communion again with God. That we may be then brought into his family and called children of God. We were hostile towards him, yet his heart was for us. So that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Peacemaking is stepping into the conflict. Jesus was the greatest demonstration of a peacemaker as he stepped down from heaven and community with his father into the conflict of this world, into the conflict between man and God and brought reconciliation. And we're called to do the same, to bring peace and to reconcile. Potentially, though, in your situation, reconciliation, it might not be possible or it might not be safe or logistically, it will never be able to happen. Romans 12 verse 18 says, if it's possible, live at peace with everyone, which implies it's not always possible. Um, But as we've seen in this passage so far, it's your heart's posture that Jesus cares about, pure in heart, gentle, longing for righteousness. We start with the heart because the more we work on our heart's posture, the more ready we will be for what the world will throw at us. And as we go on to see in these last verses, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I feel like only Jesus can get away with putting blessed and persecuted next to each other in a sentence. Here in the West, persecution for our faith looks very different. We probably could say that people generally these days are quite tolerable of the, tolerable of the Christian faith. We're very lucky to live in a country where it's not illegal to be a Christian, and the cost of following Jesus doesn't seem as high. But Jesus covers it all, not just persecution, but Blessed are you when people insult you and tell lies and make up evil against you because of him. I told a story a few months back about a friend of mine who grew up in a Hindu family in Birmingham and in her late teens became a Christian and consequently was banished from her home by her family and lost all contact with them for 22 years. She was persecuted by her own family for her faith. She lost everything close to her for the gift that Jesus had given her. 
She, as Jesus instructs in Matthew 16, denied herself, took up her cross and followed him and her reward is in heaven. It's sometimes easy to think of our Christian faith as slotting quite nicely into modern day 21st century lives through Christian celebrity culture that we have. We've got high quality, well-produced Christian music that's no longer cringy. We've got revolutionized graphics. The days of word art are over. We, yeah, it was a dark time. It was a really dark time. <laughs> In terms of content standard and style, the modern day church is kind of nailing it. Like it looks pretty good. But I think it can almost be easy to forget that the gospel actually doesn't slot into the way of this world. It doesn't harmoniously work together. It stands out. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is not what our culture is preaching. The gospel is costly. And this challenge for us all today is if we're not finding the gospel costly, have we just gotten comfortable? Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. It's basically a guarantee. He doesn't leave it there, though. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Persecution, insults, lies, they don't have the final word. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our struggles, our striving on this earth, our current hardships are momentary compared to the joy of heaven that's to come. And within this passage, Jesus turns on its head who society says is blessed, who is happy. And when we think of those blessings, we may think blessed are those on good incomes, blessed are those who are productive, blessed are those who have acquired nice things, blessed are those who are healthy, blessed are those who are headstrong, blessed are those who are successful. This is that upward trajectory that I spoke about at the beginning. And maybe your life or the life of someone you know or care about doesn't look like that. But I said, as I said earlier, we can look at these invitations as promises. They are divine and weighty blessings in the midst of the struggles, as callings for the weary, the downtrodden, to look to the king above it all who calls you blessed. These struggles don't disqualify us from the blessing of God, but rather when we are in these states, we are all the more blessed. He says this morning, blessed is the one who has come to the end of themselves, who is lacking, whose spiritual river has run dry. My kingdom is here for you. Blessed is the one who is carrying pain and loss in their heart. The depressed, the weary, for I will comfort you. Blessed is the one who the world tells you, your voice is quiet, your voice is small. I see your humility, and it's you who will inherit my land. Blessed is the one who is striving through hostile relationships and longing for reconciliation. In me and me alone will you be satisfied. Blessed is the one who, when culture tells you, you should retaliate, you should excommunicate, you should repay, but instead you forgive. You will know my mercy you will see my face and you will be called a child of God. And blessed is the one who goes against the tide of this age, weathering insults, lies and persecution for my name. You are blessed. But I think it's really important when we feel the weight of these strivings to remember that there is power in the name of Jesus. And we can speak his name over our own hardships, our own shortcomings, our own struggles, but we can also do it on behalf of of our friends, our families, our colleagues, our street, our city. We can lift up those who are weary, poor in spirit, mourning, persecuted, and pray the name of Jesus over them, that they would know God's blessing.